chapter 14 of the Gospel of Mark. And our verses today will be a small portion of text found in verses 27 through uh, 31. In the words of Martin Luther, the early reformer who wrote the classic hymn and song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. In the third verse, there is a line that says, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. I've often thought of the ministry or the task of the devil is to attempt the total undoing of everything that the Lord has created. And if I would say that the devil has a ministry, it was to undo everything that God has created, including undoing you. And I know that we are not typically starting a sermon or a lesson on focusing on the devil. And I know the starting point of a sermon is not to focus on his undoing or on his power, but to focus on the power of the, of the gospel over sin, death, and darkness. And there is a reminder in God's word that, that we have an enemy that seeks to undo you. I remember hearing John MacArthur give an illustration that he was attending a conference, and I think that he was the speaker for this particular conference. And, and John MacArthur said that the pastor of the church stood up, the the, uh, the MC, I guess, the master of ceremony, stood up to, to say a prayer. And as he said his beginning prayer, he opened with the words, Satan, we bind you. And although I understand the, the thought behind it, I do think that we need to really realize that there is an enemy that seeks to undo you. We are reminded in Ephesians 6 and verse 12 that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so my question to you today, are we all undone? And you might answer that and say, well, preacher, you know that we are all, all undone outside of Christ. The Bible is a clear demonstration of that from cover to cover that we are undone without the Lord Jesus. In fact, it was the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 that said, I am undone. Woe, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips and I live amongst the people who are unclean. So my goal for us today is to focus on the ugly aspect of our present human nature. You might say, well, preacher, what? Why do you want to focus on that? Because there is a remedy that is sweeter. There is a remedy that is sweet and encouraging to our heart. I want to ask you that question again. Are we all undone? 
And while that question is still reverberating, still echoing, while that question is still lingering, will you stand with me as we read this portion of Scripture together? Let's stand together for the reading of the Word of God. If you don't have a copy of God's Word with you today, the the words are on the back screen. You'll have to turn around to look. Don't mind it. It's the Word of God. And there's a Bible in your pew as well. The Word of the Lord says this, beginning chapter 14, verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, the disciples, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Every one of the disciples said, I will not deny you. Lord, we ask you to add your blessing to the reading of this word. Lord, may you speak to us today. Lord, we know that your word is transformative. Lord, as we read your word and as the Spirit of God begins to give illumination, uh, we pray that you will speak to us through it. Change us today. Let every one of us identify with the disciples and to look to our Savior as the example. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So up until this point, the disciples have been with Jesus and he has been teaching them how to make other disciples. And really, if you look at the life of Jesus, that was Jesus' scheme of ministry. His, his mode of operation for building the kingdom was that Jesus himself would lead. He would lead his disciples as they would teach with him. And then he would ultimately send them out. So that was the Lord Jesus. That was his mode of operation. He's been preparing his disciples to carry on his ministry once, he, once the Lord Jesus dies and is resurrected again. This is his mode of operation. He wants disciples to go and to make other disciples. That has really been the mode of operation, if you will, through the centuries, through the years, is for you as the disciple of the Lord Jesus to make other disciples. And another place out of context of the Holy Word, if we were to read this, and, and if, if we were to read this, this what Jesus tells him, it, that he's going to die, and that he's going to be resurrected, and that he sends disciples out. If we were to read that in a sentence, that, that uh, the Lord is going to die, or somebody's going to die, they're going to be resurrected, and then send people out, outside of the context of the Holy Word of God, that sentence would make no sense at all. It would make no sense whatsoever, but in the scope of the gospel, it is beautiful because it calls us to the carpet on making other disciples. And I might have said this once before. I don't even know if I've even coined the phrase, but there is no such thing as a lone star, a lone ranger Christian. Amen? 
There is no such thing as a lone ranger Christian by yourself, individualism in this sense, wrap yourself up in your own world and get away from everybody else. God has called us into a community. And outside of the scope of Scripture, this makes no sense. But it is beautiful in what God has prepared for us to make other disciples. Jesus prepares the Passover by sending his two disciples into town to prepare the upper room. It is in this upper room where Jesus predicts his soon coming betrayal by the infamous Judas Iscariot. He uh, then sups with his sinners. He sups with Judas. He sups with those that he knows is going to scatter, thus leaving forever the memorial of taking, uh, the taking place of the Passover with the new covenant that we get to participate in every, every month. As we break the elements of the Lord's, uh, the Lord's table and distribute them, we get to memorialize this as a new covenant, a new Passover in a sense. And through Jesus' death on the cross as the Passover lamb and as the resurrection, it is a new covenant that has been before us. It is after this institution of the memorial supper that we so familiar, uh, we're familiar with calling the Last Supper. It is then that Jesus tells his disciples, let's make our way to the Garden of Gethsemane. And that is where we left off last week as they have left, and now they're making their way to the Garden of Gethsemane in verse, 20, in verse uh, 26. They sang a hymn on the way to the Mount of Olives. It is during this walk, as he is walking with his disciples, it is on this traveling on the road to uh, the Mount of Olives, it is during this time that they make their way to a pit stop at the Garden of Eden, uh, the Garden of Gethsemane. This is where the Lord Jesus will address Peter and the disciples on their soon-to-be scattering or dispersion. And as they are on their way, and they're making their way from verse 26. They had sung a hymn together. They went out towards the Mount of Olives and were stopped at the Garden of Gethsemane, which we will pick up there uh, next, next week. Now, if you were to lay out a map, but if you were to look at from Jerusalem, the upper room, and if you were to stretch that map out and you were, had your end goal to be, let's say you open up your app on your phone and modern day, let's say even modern day Jerusalem, you type in Jerusalem and I want to go to the Mount of Olives and you'll find as you're traveling from Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives, even modern day maps show that you will first come to contact with the Garden of Gethsemane and that is where they will stop for the Lord Jesus is uh, betrayal. But what we find beginning at verse 27, after this recap, uh, in verse 27, there is a couple of things that I want to remind you of as we look through these verses. As I ask the question, are we undone? There is a sweet remedy to that question. So beginning at verse 27 and 28, we find a warning and we find a remedy. There is a warning and a remedy. Let's look at the warning first in verse 27. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written in Zechariah, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. 
So in those verses, we already see at the, on the onset of them, there is a warning that there is a beautiful remedy to it all as well. And the remedy comes in the resurrection. There is a constant theme that streams through the scripture. And that is the theme of scattering and gathering. God will gather his people. There will be a scattering and there will be a gathering. This scattering is in the either one or two scenarios. The scattering is because of sin and sorrow and the gathering is done by God as he gathers himself to, as he gathers his people to himself. Now we'll see this at the end of the age where God will gather all his people, all tribes, nation, people, tongues, colors, creeds, whatever, as we will worship the Lord for all of eternity in the book of the Revelation that shows this multitude like the sand of the sea. God will gather his people once again. But the word for scattered in, in reference to God's people, I want you to know that it is used over 40 times in Scripture. And these 40 times are more specific to there being a dispersion. The people, the nation of Israel being scattered in some way. Sometimes they are scattered because of their own sin. In the New Testament context, they are scattered because of persecution. And this persecution is the spreading of the gospel and the end result of this persecution as the churches are going out and people are going out because of persecution, they're taking the gospel to other places and to the uttermost parts of the world. And so in this regard, this scattering is because of sin. Jesus is keeping with the theme of prediction. He's warning his disciples that they will fall away. And now because they are prone to fall away, and that's us too, because we are prone to fall away. And what I mean by that is more specifically, in the song, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, we are prone to wander from God. It is in our nature. We are prone to rebel. We like to think of ourselves as the most devout Christ follower that the world will ever see. We like to think of ourselves as the most devout person. I'm the Christ follower that everybody wants to ascribe to be like. We don't like to think of ourselves as prone to wander from God or drift from time to time or even rebel. No one likes to hear that they are fallen or that there is a deficit in their spirituality and their walk between the Lord Jesus. Now there are two actions that are seen here, that they will fall away and that they will be scattered. The Greek, the Greek language captures this, this warning this way, that you will lose all confidence in me and you will, you will stumble. In fact, it's actually reversed that you will, you will stumble and you will lose confidence in me as Messiah and they will be scattered. The word for fall away is actually where we get our word for scandalous from. That's saying that they will fall away or be caused to sin. See, the frightful words here is Jesus says these frightful words that they will scattered because of him this night. He says, because of me, you will be scattered. Now, it isn't because Jesus sinned. We know that Jesus had no sin, right? No deceit, no guile, the King James says. No deceit was found in him. No sin whatsoever. It's amazing how many people in the world today, even amongst the church, believe that Jesus had sin. What kind of blasphemy is that? Something will happen to the Lord Jesus that will press his disciples to make a decision. Will they stand or will they fall? And Jesus pulls from Zechariah 13, 
In verse 7, in these Old Testament Hebrew prophetic words, it says, Awake my sword against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts, Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. And we know, of course, that the Lord Jesus is the good shepherd, and his little ones are his disciples. The Lord Jesus, we know, will be persecuted, taken to Calvary's hill, but die on the cross, and his people, his disciples, will be Scatter. Now, in the context of Zechariah, it is fitting for Mark. And you might say, how so, preacher? Because here in Mark and also in Zechariah, they both forecast there must be a cleansing of sin and a reform in establishing an existent religious establishment. That the Lord Jesus is going to come and He is going to turn modern day Judaism, if you will. He's going to turn the law on its head and show that all the law, the commands are seen now through Him. And so there is a reformation, a cleansing of sin and a reformation that needs to be done. And both, both contexts are fitting. Thus, the striking of the shepherd, Jesus, brings all these into to focus. And while the striking of the shepherd, Jesus, will cause the little ones, his people, his disciples, to scatter, the resurrection will cause them to be assembled. Isn't that glorious? That persecution, well, their own sin, mind you, will cause his people to be scattered, but after the resurrection will draw them in. Scattering and gathering. His power over death, his power over the grave, over hell, is the driving force to everyone who is a Christ follower. And so... After Jesus gives this disheartening news, he gives a remedy. He gives the encouragement. He gives an uplifting reminder that he will be raised up. Now, they didn't understand all the ins and outs and what this is going to look like. They didn't understand the beating that would take place. They didn't understand that Jesus, that the, as Isaiah so eloquently shows in Isaiah 53, he would be beaten to the place of unrecognition. The disciples didn't understand all of this until after it happened. And unless we have it written in the text, we don't know exactly what the disciples were immediately thinking. We don't want to say, well, the disciples here were thinking, well, what's wrong with Jesus? We don't want to impose something onto the text that is not there. We don't, we don't want to, to say the disciples were thinking this if we are not explicitly told in the text. But these verses are a reminder to us. And here's a reminder. Very simple truth. I am weak, but thou art strong. Let's say that together. I am weak, but thou art strong. And in, that, and in that song, Just a Closer Walk with Thee, the song continue all, continues on and says, Jesus, keep me from all wrong. I'll be satisfied as long as I walk. Let me walk close to thee. That's the reminder. I'm weak. I'm weak in myself, but you are strong. The disciples were scattered because of their own fear, their own self-preservation. And we haven't come across that, this coming to pass as of yet in the Gospel of Mark, but we will. And we'll see that it's because of fear and on their own self-preservation. They're doubting that this Jesus might even be Messiah. Their hopes, and, their hopes were crushed. When pressed with their own profession of the Lord Jesus, they, they failed. 
The passion of the Lord Jesus is, I think of his passion. People say this often, the passion of the Christ. His passion is clinging to that cross. Holding to the cross. It, it was a task that only our Lord Jesus could do. Our Lord must be beaten, must be struck. He would be mocked. He would be ridiculed. He would be hung on the cross naked and in shame all by himself. No one could usher our Lord Jesus to the cruelty of the cross. The place charted to Calvary was a place that he must go in alone. Just Jesus and your sin. But here's the word of remedy, the word of encouragement. Christ should rise again from the dead with power and glory where they, which is you and I, have ran from him. He will come to them, you and I again, and he will gather to himself his people as a good shepherd will do. Now I know that there might be people listening in today who at one time made a profession of the Lord Jesus Christ now, I don't doubt anyone's salvation. That's for, not for me to do. And you, have may, you may have been on the wayward road for quite some time. I want to tell you today that Jesus loves you. He wants you to repent of your sin. And He will gather you again to sweet fellowship with Himself. Amen? He is the good shepherd. I am encouraged by these verses today for they remind us, even though that we might not always stand faithful for Jesus like we might think that we do, He will always be faithful to use us and never will He forsake us. See, you and I might be scattered or we might even fail the Lord from time to time, but if you are His, He will always gather you back into Himself. And it is for His, glo his glory and for His honor and so that you could be grounded in Him and grow in Him. But then we find something that happens as a telling testament to the human broken spirit as well. And that is a haughty spirit comes before a fall. Haughty spirit comes before a fall. And we know that this is a reference from Proverbs 16 verse 18. Hopefully this is a well-known verse. And sometimes people use this even in, the, even in the worldly sense today. Pride comes before destruction and a haughty or a prideful spirit comes before the fall. See, they both mean the same thing. They're saying the same thing. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall, destruction. They're both saying the same thing in that psalm. See, this is classic Simon Peter. Classic Simon Peter and reflective of who we are as well. So let's read this. Verse 29, Peter said to Jesus, even though they all will fall away, I will not. I want you to pay attention to that tone and to that, that statement that he makes and the tone that he uses. But Peter basically called out his fellow brother. In today's vernacular, we would say, well, he threw the rest of the disciples under the bus, right? He called them out. They might fall away, but I, I will not. I'll stand with you. I'll stand with you. Now, you want to know my natural reaction to this way of thinking in these days? When, when I hear boastfulness in the world today, and sometimes we, hear, sometimes we might hear well-meaning Christ followers do this too. 
Well, look at all the things I've done for this ministry. Look at all the things that I've done. You know, I have a problem sometimes with road rage. Who has a problem with, not really myself getting mad, but people driving like they're crazy. You, get, you, get a pro, you have a problem with that? Let me see a show of hands. I'm not the only one. <laughs> so I'll be driving down the road doing 55 or maybe even 60, you know. Hope there's no law enforcement officers watching today, but... And I see somebody blow past me, like doing 70, 80. You know what I say to myself? One or two things. I find myself saying, well, I hope they get a ticket up there. <laughs> I've often said this. I, sometimes I wish my car was made out of Rubbermaid, and I would just, boof, rear-end them in the back. My first reaction to boastfulness and arrogance, even though sometimes we might even be prone to follow suit. My first reaction is, I can't wait to see you fail. And I know that isn't a very Christ-honoring reaction, but that's my first reaction sometimes. I find myself repenting, and, and my first reaction, I, I can't wait to see this. But what does Jesus do? The tender shepherd, the loving shepherd, the merciful shepherd. He admonishes the apostle Peter. He says, I tell you truly, verily, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. The foreknowledge of the Lord Jesus knew exactly what would happen. You remember back where Jesus told Peter that Satan sifts, is seeking to sift him like wheat. <laughs> As he's gathered around that fire with all those and he has the Galilean accent that gives him away, Satan is beginning to try to sift him as wheat. Jesus knows this in his foreknowledge. That is the one constant with pride and arrogance that they will stick to their guns Jesus, referring to a literal rooster crowing, says that you will deny me before this rooster finishes his, his crowing. You think that you're strong? You can't even sustain through the night. He might end up like Jesus. He might end up beaten, imprisoned. You think you're strong? You won't even make it through the night. And here's something that lines up with the Proverbs. A haughty spirit before a fall, pride comes before destruction. Jesus' foretelling here is when the prideful fall, they fall hard. And as you follow what happens to the apostle Peter's denial of Jesus, is that he will be broken and undone. Then God will use him. I think sometimes we need to get to that place of brokenness. In fact, every person that ever comes to faith in the Lord Jesus must be, be first broken because of their sin. As they repent of sin, they will be broken, and then God will use, will use us, will use those who are broken. And maybe sometimes even in ministry, we need to be broken from our pride and our arrogance, and God will greatly use us. See, the ministry and any ministry you're in is not about you. 
It is not how successful you are in that ministry. It is about what the Lord Jesus is doing through you and through that ministry. It's His. It all belongs to Him. He said emphatically, Peter says this in his pride. If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And then they all followed suit and they all said the same thing in his pride. Truer words have Peter ever spoken then he will die for the Lord Jesus. It will not be for some years later, but the Lord Jesus predicted it, that he will partake of the cup. He will die. Jesus predicted it, and Peter himself said, I will die with you. Maybe not in the physical sense, but Peter will die a martyr's death. To understand Peter's denial in these verses and his conversion, I, I think it would be helpful to understand more about the Apostle Peter. Simon Peter is known as Cephas. We find that in John chapter 1, verse 42. And he was one of the first followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter was known to be very boisterous, very opinionated, as we've already seen so far. We've seen it on Caesarea. We've seen it here. Peter was very passionate, very strong-willed sometimes reckless and many times arrogant as well, prideful. He, Peter had several shortcomings in his life. Sometimes these shortcomings in today's world would seem to be good qualities. And the Lord Jesus will surely use his, his passion, his strong-willedness. He, he, will, he will use those things in the Apostle Peter's life to be a very loud voice for the gospel. And he will use him in those in those places, but in the world we live in today, to be uh, strong-willed and sometimes reckless and, and even sometimes prideful or arrogant, these are things that the world shine favorably upon. And even though all of these characteristics that are found in Peter that sometimes get in the way of the, of the Apostle Peter listening to the Lord Jesus, the Lord is going to use him greatly, but not before he is broken before him. See, repentance will do that. The Holy Spirit will do that. It will bring you to a place of being broken before our Lord. And John 1.44 says that Peter was from Bethsaida and he lived on the coast of the Sea of Galilee. It was speculated that the Apostle Peter was married, although this is speculated from 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 5. And church historians write of how Simon Peter died as he was crucified upside down and crucified with his wife, although that is sometimes speculative. The Lord Jesus changes his name to Cephas in the Aramaic and Peter in the Greek, which means rock. Which means as the Lord Jesus is addressing Peter on, at, at, the, uh, at Caesarea and he says that Peter, upon this rock I will build my church. A play on words. And what did Peter say? That you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And like the other disciples, once Jesus called him to himself and to serve him, the Bible says that Peter did so immediately. So there is a lesson there to follow the Lord Jesus immediately and give it all to him as we follow him. And under the lordship and the leadership of Jesus, Peter was a natural born leader. He led well. He was considered to be the inner three of the disciples and sometimes was shown to be the spokesperson for the disciples. There are examples in God's Word. Uh, for example, in Matthew 15, 16, Peter speaks up for Jesus to 
explain the parable to us. So he's employing for the rest of the disciples, he's a spokesperson that says, explain this parable. But more notably, it was Peter who first acknowledged that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and to which the Lord Jesus uses this play on words for rock to say upon this rock, this proclamation, that Christ is the Son of the living God, I will build my church. He was part of the inner disciples, Peter, James, and John, and only these three were present when Jesus raised the worship leader Jairus, daughter from, from the dead in Mark 5, 37. The three were present at the transfiguration of Jesus in Matthew 17, verse 1, and through Peter, James, and John, or Peter and John, I should say, were given the special task that we saw last week of preparing the final meal of the Passover, found in Luke 22, verse in verse 8, and there are many times in the Bible where Peter is shown to be rash or to be reckless and sometimes out of control maybe. I, I use this word for Peter. He was a very boisterous person, very loud personality. For example, remember when, uh, remember when Jesus was walking out to the disciples and he's walking on the water and he's approaching the boat, remember who it was who jumped out of the boat? It was the Apostle Peter who jumped out of the boat walking to the Lord Jesus found in Matthew 14, verses 28 and 29. And then as he gets his, his eyes off the master, all of the creator of the sea, the wind, the sky, the moon, he gets his eyes off of Jesus and what does he do? He begins to sing. It was Peter who took Jesus aside and rebuked him when Jesus forecasted his own death and to which Jesus gave him a swift rebuke. It was Peter who suggested that, he, that they build three tabernacles on the Mount of Transfiguration to uh, Moses, Elijah, and then to, to, to Jesus and fell to the ground in silence at God's glory in verses 5 and 6 in Matthew 17. It was Peter who drew his sword, remember, at the Garden of Gethsemane to strike one of the servants of the high priest and was immediately told to put his sword back. It was Peter who boasted that he would never forsake the Lord, as we just read, who would never forsake him and even denied him three times. So the life of Peter certainly teaches us something. And through all of Peter's ups and downs, his valleys, his high, high points, I want you to know, I want you to understand that Jesus remained his loving Lord and faithful to call him back to himself. He calls him the rock, promising that he and his proclamation would be what the foundation of the church is built on. Now, after the resurrection, Peter is the one who heard the good news. And we find on the day of Pentecost... See, Peter is broken. He is undone. But after the day of Pentecost, what do we find Peter doing? Peter was the main speaker in Jerusalem. Acts 2, verse 14, the church began to, uh, to be alive and we saw 3,000 new believers come to be saved. And Peter began to preach and the Bible tells us that many were added to the church daily. Before he was a denier, now he is a proclaimer of the word of God. Acts chapter 4 shows that Peter was beaten for the sake of the gospel and let for joy to be counted worthy to be persecuted for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Once a betrayer, 
then proclaimer of God's word. He was an apostle and ambassador for the Lord Jesus. He led many to salvation. Later in life, he spent his time with, with John, uh, John Mark, we find in 1 Peter 5, 13, in which we get to read the gospel according to Mark today, who Mark got his rendition, his recollection of the words of Jesus from none other than the apostle Peter. Peter would go on to write First and Second Peter. And Jesus said that Peter would, in fact, die a martyr for the church. And it is traditionally held, historically held, that Peter was crucified upside down in Rome because he did not feel worthy to be crucified with his, uh, like his Lord Jesus was. But what can we learn from Peter's life? This is before this actually will happen in the gospel accounts. But what can we learn from his life? And here are a few things that we can learn. Even though Peter spoke presumptuously and out of turn many times, he will deny the Lord at his trial. But Jesus is faithful to forgive. And there might be times in our life where we are unfaithful to the Lord. There might be times when we do not stand as we ought to stand. But I want you to know that the Lord is faithful to us. He will forgive us if we are uh, if we are unfaithful to serve our Lord. After Peter had boasted that he would never leave the Lord, he would, he would never betray him, then Peter fervently denied the Lord three times. And it seemed that Peter had burnt his bridges with the Lord Jesus and that he would never be able to come back and serve the Messiah. But we find the tender, the tender forgiveness of our Lord shining through, shining through the gospel account. Peter is loved by the Lord Jesus. His relationship will be rebuilt and be restored to service. And he certainly can restore your life today. It doesn't matter how far you have strayed from the Lord. If you are in him, he is beckoning you back to himself today. Repent, cling to him, and he can use you. The question that I propose at the beginning, are we all undone? The answer to that is emphatically yes. But the remedy and the beauty, I believe, is found in the verse. And I'm going to close on this verse. We will open the altar for those who might want to pray. I'm going to, I'm going to come down front. I'm going to sing. And we're going to sing together without him. But I want to end on this verse. I want you to listen careful, carefully to this verse. Are we undone? Yes. Without him, we are undone. But I want you to listen very closely to this. And then we'll sing together. 1 John 1, verse 9. A very well-known verse in the body of Scripture. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and He is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I'm going to ask you, if we'll do that, let's read this together. Let's read this together. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness.